Well, here we are, lucky episode number three of the Stick to Syracuse podcast. I thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Brent Dax. Hey, how'd you find us? Did you come through the link on Syracuse.com or maybe on social media? Thank you for that. I want to tell you about a cool way, though, that you can keep up with the Stick to Syracuse podcast that comes out every Monday. You should subscribe. We're in iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go to any one of those services, just hit the subscribe button, and new episodes will be waiting for you on Mondays when they arrive. Two great guests coming up for you today. They say you shouldn't talk politics or religion at a party, but this isn't a party, it's a podcast. I mean, it's a party in a podcast, but you know what I mean. We're going to talk to Congressman John Catgill about a number of subjects, Route 81, the border debate, and what makes Syracuse, Syracuse in the eyes of our congressman. You're also going to hear from one of the up-and-coming artists in central New York on the sound scene with Kathleen Mason from K-Maze Productions. Sydney Irving is rocking it when she doesn't have to do her math. All right, Just Joe, what do you say you get us going here? Behind SU Sports, snowstorm weather we pose. Ladies and gentlemen, your host of Stick to Syracuse, Brett X! Before we get to those two great guests today, a word about something we've all been thinking about in Central New York the past few days. Syracuse basketball head coach Jim Beheim returned to the court on Saturday. There was a debate about whether Beheim should have been out there following a tragic accident that took the life of 51-year-old Jorge Jimenez. As many of you know, Beheim was coming home from a win over Louisville on that Wednesday night and came upon an accident scene, tried to avoid the car on the road, and struck and killed Mr. Jimenez. This has been a story that's garnered a national following, many chiming in with many opinions on this. The applause that Beheim received at the Carrier Dome was simply a show of support for a beloved figure in central New York and a family that everybody in attendance knew was hurting. But not far from anybody's mind was Jorge Jimenez and his family and what they had been going through. Jim Beheim, who has seen some adversity in his life before, but nothing like this, described what life will be like for him going forward. I just can't describe... The feelings I have have had since Wednesday night, um, I don't think you can, I, I don't think I can make anybody understand who hasn't been there. I, I don't. I, you know, this is, this is something that's there, you know, forever for me. And I, it's one of those, I've always felt in life you know you get a lot of things you have to overcome and uh, I started here with nothing and I've been here a long time and there's a lot of things in there that you have to overcome but there's nothing there is nothing like this when a human life is lost and you're there Um, I, I just I can't I can't describe it to you. I've talked to many people who have been in that situation, and uh, they say the same thing. You know, I, but, you know, as far as being here, I have to coach these guys, and 
I mean, never, this is never going away, like I said. And so, I mean, Tuesday, it's not going to be any better. It's not going to be any better next week. It's not going to be any better next month. It's not going to be any better next year. You know, I, we've reached out to the family. I, I intend to try to do that in, as I can in the future. This isn't about me. It doesn't matter what, how I feel. It's how they feel. Beheim's situation certainly shows that we shouldn't tell anybody how they go forward and how they grieve, even after a tragic situation like this. He happens to have the most high-profile position in central New York, so every move he makes will be scrutinized to the nth degree. I think the best we can do is send our thoughts and prayers to both families and hope it plays out as best as it can in a situation that any one of us could have been in. I've driven that patch of highway myself pretty much every day I've lived here in central New York. We hope the Jimenez family can find whatever peace and comfort they can in this tragic time and that Coach Beheim can move on as best as he can as well. On to today's episode of Stick to Syracuse. Here's my conversation with Congressman John Katko. So, John, I'm, I'm curious about one thing in that you say this a lot, bipartisanship and working with the other side of the aisle. And on one hand, I keep hearing about how divided we are. So how do you play that ping pong game of trying to be bipartisan, work with the other side, but then, you know, a lot of things will show us that that divide just keeps getting wider and wider. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to try and uh, look for common ground on everything you do. And, uh, uh, like, I don't inter- even introduce a bill in, in Congress unless I have a Democratic co-sponsor. And that's why I've been pretty su- pretty successfully, uh, legislatively, I've had 33 bills pass the House, 34 now, and 20 signed into law, 10 by Obama and 10 by Trump. And uh, uh, I did that. Be- I do. I'm that have had that success because I work with the other side from the beginning. And so, if I introduce a bill, or I want to introduce a bill, and I'm trying to get a Democrat to sign on, if a Democrat says, "Well, I would do it by 80 X, Y, and Z fixed in this bill," I fix it. It's not. In, and I really subscribe to what Ronald Reagan's theory was: I'll take what I can get now and keep working on the rest. And that's why he was able to work with Tip O'Neill and get a lot of stuff done back then. And I guess the most recent example of my bipartisanship is I don't believe in government shutdowns. So I voted for all the Democratic uh, uh, bills that came up to reopen the government. And there was like seven or eight of them. And uh, I care about my party. I believe in conservatism, but I also believe in bipartisanship. And I don't ever believe in shutting government down. So I'll cross the aisle anytime I think it's good for my constituents. And I'm always trying to find the common ground. And one thing I've been uh, done since I've been in Congress, been involved in something called the Tuesday Group, which is the moderate wing of the Republican Party. I've also been involved in what's called the Problem Solvers Caucus, and that's an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, and we're constantly trying to find common ground. I did a big infrastructure report based on that, which I authored with a, with a Democrat from, uh, from Connecticut, and we, we are constantly finding proposals and looking for ways to have common ground. And that's what, that's, that's what I believe in. That's, it's in my DNA. So the two-party system still works. It, this, this is the way that this should go forward. Or- uh, no, I don't know. Listen, it's deeply flawed. There's no question yeah. about it. It's an imperfect experiment in democracy. But, um, you know, uh, I think if people would put down their swords and for the good of the country, trying to understand that, Finding common ground is better than uh, taking extreme positions. The far left and the far right are both guilty of it. And quite frankly, I think they both hijacked our parties, their, their, their respective parties. And it's the people like me in the middle and others like the blue dog Democrats who are trying to find common ground. And we've got to get back to a time where we've, we have common ground. I think 
Modern politics is is too much of a hundred percent or nothing. That's not productive. It's not going to get you anywhere. Speaking of of working on the other side of the aisle, it starts right down the road. Uh, it seems like you and Anthony Brindisi have really forged a bipartisan relationship there. Have worked well together. Well, that's what we should be doing. That's our job. And and and, and what what's um. It's amusing to me is that people are surprised to see that. And I think that should be the norm. And unfortunately, it's not. I mean, in the past, we were like that a lot more. Sherry Bullard and would work with anybody. And uh, Jim Walsh was like that. And like it's it's emblematic of modern politics that we're kind of the anomaly because we work we work together regardless of party affiliation. But we're going to continue to do that. There's a lot of things that we can do for Central New York, and by doing working together instead of separately, we're going to we'll do more. Now that being said, how does President Trump make that more difficult? Because he's certainly very vocal on social media and elsewhere, and will blame the Democrats for a lot. Yeah, his rhetoric. There's no question. His rhetoric is over the top, and. Um, it's what got him elected to some extent, and his bypassing the media and you know tweets and all that. But it, it's very different to run for office and then to govern once you're in office. And I constantly am urging him and his colleagues that work for him to get him to put down to Twitter. And because when you sit down with him, and like during the shutdown, he had he had uh, Brindisi sat next to me. We're on the White House. We had a very good discussion. There was no theatrics because there was no cameras, and we had a very good. Uh, and respectful discussion, and we aired out our our differences, and we tried to find common ground. And he was rational and, and thoughtful and listening. And then when he gets in front of the camera, he's a different guy, and that that's the problem I have. Um, but you know what? Quite frankly, the Democrats will give him nothing. They and Nancy Pelosi will not deal with him. Does not want to deal with him. I think she looks at like uh, she doesn't want to. She had opportunities with this uh, um, this latest shutdown to really get something fixed like the DACA kids fix. And she didn't want to do it. She wants to keep that as a political pawn. So that's unfortunate. So it's it's really, like I said, it's from both sides, no doubt. So let me be fair and say, is there anything he does that makes your job easier? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look at the economy. Look at unemployment in central New York. I mean, we have, we have uh, very, very low unemployment in central New York. Is it great here? No, but it's a lot better than it was being took office. And the economy overall is better. And I think what he's doing with trade is is uh, really trying to turn the ship around and stop us getting screwed on the world stage economically. That's what led to all these jobs we lost in Central New York, you know, and you know the you know the new venture gears and all that stuff. And if he gets a trade deal with China, for example, and he's and he's he's got a new trade deal with Canada that's really going to help agriculture, um, especially the dairy industry. Those things are really good policies, um, and a lot of them are overshadowed by his um, rhetoric, and that's unfortunate. On that note, what are some things that local business leaders have said to you on that front, maybe on, on both sides? This is what he's doing that's helping me. This is what's doing that's not helping me. What can you do to, to well, assist? Well, yeah, pretty much what that? I've described. Yeah. I mean, I, I give Dairy's a great example. They were getting screwed by Canada. Canada put a, a huge tariff on dairy milk, on milk products, and I'm like, well, this is NAFTA. It's supposed to be, it's the very essence of free trade. And so that's stuff I articulated to the president and his staff, and he included that in the trade agreement, the, the renegotiated trade agreement. He played hardball, and he went and got Mexico first, and then Canada was going to be left out, and the Canada finally had to capitulate and say, okay, we won't do this anymore. And I think our dairy farmers, who are businessmen uh, and women, uh, are going to benefit from it. So there's, there's good and bad. The border wall debate obviously continues to be very passionate. At the heart of it, Congressman, what's the most direct effect that you feel it has on us here in central New York? I think every time someone dies of a heroin overdose, every time someone uh, is revived from a heroin overdose, 
every time an illegal alien commits a crime uh, that, that came across the southern border, the drugs are coming across the southern border, we're impacted. It's not just about illegal aliens, by the way. It's about keeping our borders safe from drugs and, and, and contraband and child trafficking and human trafficking and all those things. And I, was, I have a very unique perspective because uh, Janet Reno hired me and sent me to the southwest border immediately in El Paso. And I saw firsthand what a sieve the border is. It was then and it continues to be. And the point I made to him and the point I made to my colleagues from the Democratic side who were with me at the White House when we met with the president was that if you put pressure on a port of entry, uh, which the Democrats think that's the, whole, the holy grail, that's great. But I know from my going after the cartel-level drug traffickers, if they see a lot of pressure being done on the port of entries, they're going to go around and so or go under. And so if you don't have sensors that sense tunnels, if you don't have barriers to stop them from going around, and you don't have a lot of pressure at the ports and points of entry, you need all three, really, um, you're, you're, you're going to lose. And people are still going to die at the rate of five an hour of drug overdoses in this country. So we've got to secure the border better than we did And now. I guess that's my question in the sense that the wall – there's so much focus on it, and the chant is build the wall, and that's where the discussion lies. But right. there's so many more layers to this. You brought up a couple, yeah. the ports of entry, mm-hmm. the tunnels. Uh, there are so many other ways that, that drugs and, and other things get into this country, but why has the wall become like the center point of, of this Because it, he's, it, he's, he's kind of drawn a line in the sand, and, and Pelosi on the other side drew a line in the sand saying no border walls. But here's the paradox. Pelosi and Schumer and all those guys in 2006 and 2007 voted four times to, to fund six or 700, I think 700 miles of barriers, which are already constructed. So what this whole fight is about is just saying those 700 miles of barriers, we need those and we need to upgrade those. It just There's more, more high pressure areas based on what the Border Patrol has identified are areas we need to fix. It's less than a couple hundred miles. So this whole fight is less than over less than a couple hundred miles. And, it, and like I said before, Obama, when he was a senator, voted for it. Um, uh, so did so did Pelosi as a congresswoman, and so did Schumer. In fact, if you go back and watch her speeches, um, the rhetoric back then was secure the countries. You know, basically they could they their 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 rhetoric matched Trump's rhetoric now on the border and. It's become more of a political thing than it is a security thing. That's unfortunate. Well, we can certainly have this whole conversation about that. Yeah. But there are a few other things I definitely wanted to ask Great you stories about. on the border someday, so we can do it for another time. And you've been there. Oh, so yeah. It's an interesting perspective, yeah. and I appreciate you sharing it. So let's go from uh, the, the southwest border to right here in central New York. The, the debate about 81 continues. Mm-hmm. And as we speak, uh, you've got one more town hall mm-hmm. left. The, the feedback that you've gotten from these has been fascinating to read about and hear about. They've been well attended. So the thing everybody agrees about, that we can't screw this up, mm-hmm. but we can't figure out the way to approach it to not do that. So we know what the options are. For people that have been following the story, you certainly know. We've got a tunnel option. We've got basically just redo the viaduct, or we've got the community grid. You've been doing these town halls to come to a consensus. Mm-hmm. What There's so much we can discuss here, but what have you learned the most from these town halls? I'll start there. That, no, every, that nobody's wrong in this, really. You know, um, you know, I think some of the big, big things I've learned, not learned, but I've you know, kind of cemented in, with these discussions. And by the way, these discussions have been terrific, and they've been very thought-provoking for people. And, the, and I credit the paper for continuously publishing articles about the town halls. I had another good one this morning, and they're talking about things like the impact to the north side of the Salina area if they change it from a grid to a, um, from a highway to a, to a grid without a pass-through. So there's been a lot of good discussions, but a couple of main ones. Arguably, it's an eyesore, and no question about it, and no question we can do better. 
everyone agrees that uh, we got to get this right. Um, I think that there is good, there's fine arguments for why you want a uh, want a grid, but there's also a lot of arguments about the impact it's going to have. And so one of the big things I've, I've really become aware of is how much of a regional issue this is, and so it's got to be considered regionally, and that's what we're doing. And you hear that's why we did the the, the town halls what we did. Auburn, everybody's like, why the heck are you having a town hall in Auburn on 81? Well, they're going to be dramatically affected by increased traffic on Route 20 coming through Auburn if, if uh, there's a grid without a pass-through. And how do you address those issues? I mean, we got letters from people like the mayor of Aurora, Aurora New York, who would be whose claims of how much of a stress would be on her town. Then you talk about, we went over to DeWitt, which is going to be affected because 41 becomes 81. And there's a lot of divergent opinion there. And then we went to Salina because we knew north of the city, they're very concerned about all the businesses grown up around 81 in Salina and the hotels and the revenue generated there. And I want to make sure people understood that. Then the last one uh, we're going to be doing as of this interview tonight in uh, Fowler High School, and it's probably going to be very heavily pro-grid. So you're going to get all four. People can digest all the information. Then the governor and his office have got to get off their butts and get the, the report out. So then we can see that the apples for apples comparison of the three three uh, alternatives, one being the, the uh, replace the viaduct, one is to have a grid with 41 become 81, and third one is a grid with underneath it a one-mile tunnel. And those are, those are three options. So when it comes... I think people will be able to make a – if there's ever going to be a consensus, and it's not sure, there's not clear there's going to be, if there's ever going to be one, people are going to be ready to make a decision a lot quicker because of these town halls, and I'm proud of that. What will a consensus feel like to you? I mean, you, you mentioned it. We're waiting for the environmental impact report to come out. Do you anticipate not taking an opinion on this until that report comes yeah, out? Yeah, I, I, just when it feels right. Right, right. I, mean, I think you can't do it until you have an apples-to-apples-to-apples apples to apples comparison. I mean, they may come out and say – we, we're, the tunnel's out. No way we're doing it. And they may come out and say the tunnel's feasible, and here's why. They may come out and say uh, the grid's feasible, but, you know, I want to make sure whatever happens that the outlying areas are considered just as much as the city of Syracuse because they all have to be. It's a regional issue. I want to throw some things at you that you have spoken out about, done events about mm-hmm. lately. We've seen uh, on your social media to kind of give you the floor to sure. tell us about some things that, that maybe are not as prevalent as, say, 81 or, or the border debate, but are important to you. And one is suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. We spoke about this recently. And can you tell us about, you know, how much of an issue it is? Because it seems like, unfortunately, the rates are, are rising. There. Okay. Well, I hope people are sitting down when they hear this because no one's aware of this. We lose five people an hour from heroin overdoses in this country. We lose five people an hour from suicides in this country. And for every suicide, there's 25 suicide attempts. And we have literally uh, two, a couple thousand attempts a day in this country of sui- for suicide, right? You think about the, just the dramatic cost of society of that, right? From a cost standpoint, a healthcare standpoint. But here's, a, here's another thing that's really telling. The number two cause of death for kids 24 and younger is suicide. The number two, the number 10 cause of death for all Americans is suicide, and nobody talks about it. The medical profession is not adequately equipped to handle it. There hasn't been enough practices and procedures. Pediatricians aren't properly trained to identify and treat those issues. There's a shortage of uh, practitioners in the field, especially for pediatric uh, mental health issues. And it's a common thing that with mental health that you self-medicate and maybe use heroin more because of it. You morph into heroin use or drug abuse. And a lot of other things can spin off of it. And I always use this example because it's a pretty stark contrast. The Zika virus was a big thing a couple of years ago. 
killed one person in the United States, but like a snap of the fingers because of the, the concern about the virus, Congress appropriated $1.6 billion to, try to, to address it. They, they, they appropriate a mere fraction, I mean a mere fraction of that every year to try and deal with understanding what is the number two cause of killers for kids 24 and younger. And so that to me is what my mission is, is to try and bring more light to it and try and get more attention paid to it. You've been pretty passionate that Harriet Tubman should be on the $20 bill. Hell yes. Falls right into yes. uh, your wheelhouse. You mentioned Auburn, of course, mm-hmm. and, and the connections there. Are you confident that's that's something that can happen? Um, yes and no. I I I I, I, I buttonholed uh, Mnuchin about it, uh, the Secretary of Treasury, last two weeks ago. And he was lukewarm to the idea, uh, but we're still going to push it. Um there's a perfect example of bipartisanship. Elijah Cummings doesn't know me from very well. We don't work on a lot of issues together. He, he's a pretty liberal guy in, in the uh, in the house. But I went over to him and said, "Hey, this is about Elijah, this is about Harriet Tubman. You got a piece of her history in your in your in your neck of the woods in your district in Maryland." And uh, he goes, "Yeah." So he he's a co-sponsor with me. So that's a great example of what bipartisanship can do. You just got to reach out to people on on things that make sense. To me, the fact that we don't have a woman or a person of color on any U.S. currency is a joke, and we got to get it. We get on paper currency. We need to do that. It's far past time. I know one of the things you do to get away from the pressures of what you do is you're a big sports fan, <laughs> big time. I know you're a big Giants fan, NSU, and Syracuse yeah. sports, of course. I think that they're going to scare the hell out of some teams, just like they did last year in their tournament. They just need to get to the tournament, and they need to win one or two more games down the stretch. And it's a nasty stretch, but. They get to the tournament, people don't see that zone, and it screws them up, man. So I think it'll be all right. I really do. I think it's going to surprise some people. Is that the most, one of the most common things people talk to you about when they find out, oh, you're, you're from Syracuse? Like, what are those things that come up? I imagine that's got to be at the top oh, of the list. Sports, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And the snow. <laughs> sports, snow. And I'm very proud of both. I'm very proud that we can handle snow. And I always try to tell everybody, like, what 130 inches of snow looks like. And I go look up to the ceiling, and they're like, holy crap. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, we're very proud of that. What are the Giants going to do a quarterback? They got to draft one this year, right? Eli Manning's not getting any younger. Well, there's a couple scenarios. My dream scenario was that the Cardinals draft, draft Kyler Murray because then they would cut Josh Rosen, Rosen and we could grab him and have him sit down behind Eli. If that doesn't happen, they're going to have to draft a quarterback. But I still think Eli's got some mileage left. They got to get some linemen now, man. They're, they were like matadors last year. They, everybody ran past the line. So they need some offensive linemen. And, John, I have one last question for you here. It's something that every guest uh, on the, on this podcast will be asked. So you can include all of Central New York in this if you'd like to. Okay. What makes Syracuse Syracuse? I think the warmth of the people and the, the natural beauty. I, I just love it here. I mean, I can't believe that I can hop on my motorcycle when I get home. And right outside my door, I'm almost instantly in the country riding around Great Lakes that are just 20 minutes, half hour from downtown Syracuse. I can't believe we have the sports we have here. It's phenomenal, big-time sports. Nobody in upstate New York has big-time sports like we do. Uh, and, and I say Buffalo included collegiate sports. Our sports are awesome here. Um, we have great schools, and we have great communities and affordable housing. And uh, I love it. I'm never leaving. I love it. Hey, what do you say? Have a happy day because we're living in Syracuse. Kath, Sydney Irving sounds really fascinating. I mean, here's, she's in high school, she's playing gigs, she's writing music, she's a straight-A student, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled just to listen to her stuff. If you listen to her, you can hear sort of that rock kind of folk. It's just kind of bleeds in, but she made this new sort of homogenization of it, and it's really interesting. It's a big word. 
<laughs> I don't like that word. Let's listen. I'm on the H's in the calendar today. Here's Kat. This is Sydney Irving. What was it like recording your first album at 13? My first album. I did not know what I was doing. Um, I kind of went in blind to what you could do in the studio and how someone would go about recording an album. So we kind of, I went in, I recorded every song in, I think, one day. We had one day to record it. And I just kind of went in guitar and voice at the same time, played the songs like twice each, and then whatever one ended up being the best one, got on the album so wow. yeah uh was so it, were you afraid was oh yeah it scary I was like, terrified no I I get super nervous like doing stuff like I'm super nervous right now but uh like I went in and it just kind of like happened it's kind of a blur now but yeah. wow you would never know when you played um the by local bash that was the first time you played in a show yeah. for k maze production yeah that was awesome thank you you were so professional you came in and i, I it blew my mind because you. you just set up like you're like it just was amazing fake it till I, you make it you that's know right exactly <laughs> so your new album how is that different from the first one as far as style goes is it any is it different or is it sort of the same genre but it's a little more advanced it's my style's definitely grown um I've got a lot of influences like that have um come along from the first one to the next second one like Tom Petty I listen to a lot of Tom Petty and like Ryan Adams the second album's got a little bit of a like more rock edge, depending on the song. Um, but I definitely held true to the same kind of like folksy pop kind of a situation, and uh, we went more in depth with uh, production on this one. So it took more time. It wasn't like going to the studio, record both at the same time. We did uh, guitar and vocal separately. Mm-hmm. We tracked it to a click track, um, and so yeah, we added like harmonies and stuff. So, what's it like? Being, for all intents and purposes, you are a working musician. Yeah. At your age. <laughs> it, again, it blows my mind. Um, but you're Thank in you. school, mm-hmm. and then you have to juggle school, and how does that work for you, juggling gigs and school? You just kind of have to get like a balance going where you do your homework after school, and then you get to play guitar. Or in my case, sometimes I put it off. Like, I'll be like, I'm going to play guitar, and then I'll do homework. <laughs> and then it's like 8 o'clock, and I'm like, maybe I should have done homework first. Um, <laughs> but you just kind of have to get a balance where it's not, like, overwhelming. And you can't have too many gigs to the point where it's just, like, too much and you're stressed out. But you just need to find that happy medium. That nice balance. But there are some gigs that you probably just can't say no to. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> um so what inspires you for writing? For writing, I take um, personal experiences, but I also take like stories I hear of other people and their experiences. Um, like, I mean, I write what I know. You can't write what you don't know, you know? Right. And uh, so I kind of, I write about like friendships that like work out or don't work out. Like I don't really know anything about love, so that's not really where my songwriting's at at the moment. Um, but someday, yeah, someday, <laughs> someday. Where would you like your music career to ultimately go? I know that again, you're young in the field. 
and it can change a million times over. Mm-hmm. But at this moment, where would you like it to ultimately go, or where do you see it going? I just want to keep playing music and writing my own music. Um, it's kind of presumptuous to say anything to, like, I want to fill stadiums or something. I mean, that'd be awesome, but you can't really uh, say that at this point. Um, it's all about growth and the decisions you make. So. You're an amazing person. You really Thank have you. your head on straight. It's <laughs> incredible. Um, I don't think I was like that for a long time. <laughs> um, but last question. Go ahead. Um, if you could do a duet with someone, anybody, who would it be? Oh, there's a lot. I know. Um, it's hard to narrow it down. But oh, there's yeah. always one that sticks in your mind, I'm sure. I think it would be Tom Petty. I, I adore Tom Petty. I've got, like, pictures on my walls, like, Aww. framed. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it'd be so cool to do, like, a duet with Ryan Adams, though. Mm-hmm. He's incredible. Um, I really like the Lumineers. They're kind mm-hmm. of newer, but they're really cool. And now, sounds from our next episode. Mike Powell, one of the great Syracuse lacrosse players ever. Now, one of the great artists in Central New York. It's a sad day in Champion. The paper mill's closing. We can't hear a thing with the church bells all frozen. Sister John Mary holds away she can't carry. And the children grow up in the rain. Take me back to Dallas, babe. Take me back to Dallas, babe. Take me back to Dallas, babe Take me back to Dallas, babe Take me back to Dallas, Thank you so much for listening to Episode 3 of the Stick to Syracuse Podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Brent Dax. Thank you to our guests today, Congressman John Katko, Sidney Irving on the sound scene with Kathleen Mason, and our associate producer, Sophie Axe. Until next time, who wants to have lunch at Coach Max Bar and Grill? Be high.